Section 12 of Charles II by Osmond Derry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2 Scotland, Exile and Restoration, Part 5. The indignation with which Hyde received this letter, and which burns in every word of his measured reply, is easily explained. If Charles were under any temptation, to lapse from protestantism he could never return to england thurlow had roundly asserted and it had been printed in holland that he had privately become a catholic the mystery of the king's religion is so insoluble that it is impossible to affirm or deny with certainty the undoubted fact that he attended mass is no evidence one way or the other but with hyde the mere fact that suspicion was openly expressed was enough to call forth the most vehement protest. Hyde's incessant care that his master should make no false step is admirably illustrated by his letter to Ormond, who had undertaken a mission to England to ascertain how matters really stood with the king's friends. He insisted that a conjunction between the levellers and the cavaliers must be a first condition of any agreement with the former, that particular promises might be made to particular men but no general concessions that ormond could not extol too highly the privileges of magna carta or the power of free parliaments when they are obstinate to insist on any unreasonable propositions let your consent be with this clause if a free parliament shall think fit to ask the same of his majesty and let that clause with an if be rather inserted to several unreasonable propositions than one general clause consented to. Through all the dreary days that were to follow, Hyde was immovable from this position. To the levellers, Charles had already written at his suggestion, promising pardon to all but those who sat and voted for his father's murder, and binding himself to govern by the known laws of the land and by successive parliaments. The cloud of poverty which had been somewhat raised by the treaty with Spain soon settled down more hopelessly than ever, as the inability or unwillingness of Spain to keep her bargain increased. God send us health and some money, wrote Hyde, who was suffering from poor man's gout, while Ormond answered Hyde's complaint of not receiving letters with the question what in the world he thought there was to write about except the want of money that makes us mad. Of Charles's own straits, Hyde said, if he has not a very speedy supply, he must take horse and tell Don Juan he has plainly run away from starving, and from seeing his servants beg in the streets, or be hauled to prison. That this was no exaggeration is shown by two other entries. If Monsieur Onyat do not this day prevent it, poor Barton will be cast into prison for what he owes his landlord while poor dick harding hath pawned every little thing he hath the cup which the prince gave him and every spoon and hath not a shirt to his back and yet will not importune his master hyde and charles were themselves no better off than dick harding on september fifth sixteen fifty seven after referring to his great necessities which you know i never call so till there is nothing left to pawn for bread Hyde described how, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, he had looked over the state of the debts and found 
that every bit of meat, every drop of drink, all the fire, and all the candles that hath been spent since the king's coming hither is entirely owed for, and how to get credit for a week more is no easy matter. There was no money with which to pay the men of the newly formed regiments, and every day Hyde had before his eyes the sad spectacle of naked soldiers. The court, wrote one of Thurlow's correspondents with malicious pleasure, is scattered and so retired that they are scarce visible, and Dorothy Chiffinch could not get four livres a day to pay for the whole washing of the king's household. As late as the end of 1659, Hyde was complaining that we every day omit the doing of somewhat, for want of twenty or thirty pounds, that is of extraordinary moment. How Charles was able to pay for his blacks when he went into mourning for Ferdinand III was a puzzle to Thurlow's correspondent. We feel that we are in the regions of bathos when we read that, compelled by dire necessity, the king hath been long without a chaplain. Youth, high spirits, and a splendid constitution, reinforced by a happy facility for ignoring other people's privations, carried Charles gaily through it all. The insouciance, which developed later into a fixed cynicism, never failed him, while the mixture of familiarity and affectionate banter with which he wrote to Hyde and Ormond reminds us of the child's letter to Newcastle, and shows that he felt absolutely safe in their patient loyalty. The gravity with which he trusted that Hyde, who had piteously described how shrunken he had become, will recover his accustomed greatness, the hurried note which bade him at a time when the poor man's gout was particularly aggressive, make as much haste as your gouty feet will give you leave, the summons to Ormond, the grand seigneur, put your lazy bones to it, for we know not what to say till you come, the petulant, I would you were, the royal tongue has a touch of coarseness here, for not letting me have a copy of your book of inscriptions, subscriptions, and superscriptions. Such utterances as these are sufficient to show the relations, and we can easily imagine the magisterial gravity of Hyde when he wrote, in answer to Charles's letter telling how he had lost his keys while watching the procession on Good Friday, you do very well in letting what you intend to lose be always by itself, and unentangled with what you desire to keep. This is the more interesting because neither Hyde nor Ormond were persons with whom liberties could safely be taken, and this Charles sometimes discovered for himself. There is a letter extant which shows that Ormond preserved the spirit which he showed as a mere boy when he caused Strafford, then in the height of his power, to be told that if he called upon him to give up his sword, he should have it through his body. He now had reason to feel aggrieved at some slight passed upon him, apparently by James, and he wrote forthwith to Charles himself. All this not being to be suffered with dissimulation, but with great meanness, the most moderate resentment I can have of it, is to demand full satisfaction from your majesty, most humbly beseeching you to believe that no greater misfortune can befall me than that of being reduced to take this means, hoping that in this occasion your majesty will oblige me never to depart from that true and sincere passion 
I have always had to manifest myself, etc. Idle poverty and recklessness are sure companions. To the infinite regret of his wise and loyal advisers, Charles permitted himself and his followers even more license in Flanders than in Cologne. From one of his spies at Bruges, Thurlow received the following. There is now a company of French comedians at Bruges who are very punctually attended by Charles Stuart and his court, and all the ladies there. Their most solemn day of acting, it is the Lord's Day. I think I may truly say that greater abominations were never practiced among people than at this day in Charles Stuart's court. Fornication, drunkenness, and adultery are esteemed no sins among them. Accounts such as this must, it is true, be read with discrimination. We do not expect austere morality from a tramp, but neither is it probable that the Spanish government would have allowed any very open scandal without protest. And it must be borne in mind that the more lurid the reports, the better would Cromwell and Thurlow be pleased. They were carefully published in England, and undoubtedly injured the prospects of Charles, by preventing sober men, especially Presbyterians, from expressing sympathy with him. Indeed, they were largely responsible for the carrying of the Act of November 1656, by which all title of either of the three brothers, or their descendants, was absolutely extinguished. Pleasure and debauchery did indeed promise to be the leaden clogs which will in the end make them stick. Charles had arrived at Bruges on April 22, 1656, and for a few weeks lodged at the house of the Irish Viscount Terra in the street of the Old Burg. On June 30 occupied permanent quarters in the first house on the right-hand side of the high street as one walks from the Burg. Here he remained until February 7, 1658, when he went to Brussels. One or two interesting notices of his stay are to be found in the records of the two societies of St. George and St. Sebastian, composed of crossbowmen and archers respectively. On June 11, 1656, he was present with his brother Henry at the festival of the former. He aimed first at the bird of honor, suspended from a mast, and struck it. It was finally brought down by a wine merchant, round whose neck Charles hung the prize, a golden bird. On June 25th he did a like honor to the rival society. Under the dates of August 3rd and 6th, there are records in its registers of promises from Charles of 1,000 crowns of gold after his death, and from Henry of 300 crowns due from his heirs. Strange to say, Charles was better than his word. In 1662 he paid to the Society of St. George 650 livres de gros, Flemish silver, and to that of St. Sebastian, 3,600 florins. To the end of his reign he retained a grateful memory of the Flemings, whom he described as the most honest and true-hearted race of people that he had met with. The outlook of the exiles had been brightened by the treaty with Spain, but having secured four good regiments from Charles's English and Irish followers to fight her battles, Spain had no intention of wasting them upon his. The reiterated demands of the king as to the causes of delay, the king of I don't know what, as the Marquis de Leda called him, brought little satisfaction, 
and he was driven to put off his projected descent upon england until the winter of sixteen fifty seven he was deeply hurt at this scurvy usage if i were with don juan he wrote to hyde i should follow your counsel and swear two or three round oaths but though i am in ill humour methinks you are in worse hyde was he admits weary of his life god give you a better temper exclaimed lord bristol the relations were still more strained when don juan don devil he had become now refused to allow charles to join his brothers at the front the difficulty was at length smoothed over and very shortly hyde was lecturing him on his want of consideration for his subjects in recklessly and uselessly exposing his person though none of those who think that you are like to recover your three kingdoms without being in danger of your life it is evident that the service was of real danger and that there was no shirking on the part of the brothers for at this very time charles was requested by bristol to remonstrate with james on the same score while in an attempt to recover mardyke ormond had his horse shot under him when riding at the king's side once more the king claimed the fulfilment of the spanish promises his friends in england were at length ready to move and arms and provisions were stored at newport and ostend but don john replied that he would risk no troops until some trustworthy informant could satisfy him of the actual facts the extraordinary confidence in which ormond was held is shown by the acceptance of his offer already mentioned to go to england and ascertain the state of parties charles pawned his george to pay the expenses of the journey cromwell's spies were successfully deceived by the report that he was leaving on a mission to the diet and he landed in essex in the beginning of january sixteen fifty eight he remained a month in disguise in england consulted the sealed knot and other leading royalists and returned with a report so hopeless that all designs had to be postponed his presence in england was duly notified to cromwell by sir richard willis the traitor of the knot who however playing the double game gave warning to ormond himself at the same time so that he was able to leave the country unscathed while still in england in hourly danger of liberty and life he managed to send a notable and beautiful letter to hyde which shows with what discriminating loyalty these two dealt with their master i must now freely confess to you that what you have written of the king's unseasonable impatience at his stay at bruges is a greater damp to my hopes of his recovery than the strength of his enemies or the weakness and backwardness of those who profess him friendship modesty courage and many accidents may overcome those enemies and unite and fix those friends but i fear his immoderate delight in empty effeminate and vulgar conversations is become an irresistible part of his nature and will never suffer him to animate his own designs and others actions with that spirit which is requisite for his quality and much more to his fortune this to any but to you or him from any unless a very few but from me or from me at any other time were too bold a lamentation for so god knows it is may god bless him and fit him for his work it is letters such as these that show that charles was restored in spite of himself 
While Ormond was thus risking his life in England, Charles was at Antwerp with his sister Mary. His first governor, the magnificent Newcastle, was there also, and for many days all troubles were forgotten in the entertainments which he provided. But the prospects grew dark month by month throughout that year. The Spanish pensions were not paid. Complaints of robbery and outrage by the starving men of the regiments were frequent. The broken officers thronged the court with importunate clamor. On March 1st, English frigates destroyed the ships at Ostend in which Charles hoped to make his voyage, and next winter was once more the earliest moment for the enterprise. On June 8th, the prospects of Spain, and with them his own, vanished at the Battle of the Dunes, when the four Irish and English regiments under James gave way before the charge of the Ironsides. Once more conversion was put before Charles as his best chance of help, but he himself reported on June 28th, I find Don Alonso reasonable enough in the point of my conversion, and does think the best way to that is to do all that is possible to set me in England again and leave the rest to God. The last five words form the diplomatic phrase for indefinite postponement. Spain no more cared about Charles's conversion than did Louis the Fourteenth in later years at the Treaty of Dover. End of section twelve.